We're going to turn now once again to the book of Revelation. And I want to direct your attention to chapter 12. This is what it says. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Let me just give you a little bit of background. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, is on the Isle of Patmos, and he says the reason that he's there is because of his commitment to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he got into trouble with the authorities for speaking out straight and, and, and to the point about Jesus. They didn't like it, and so he's in exile, probably working in a quarry in, on the Isle of Patmos. And while he's there, he has a vision or possibly a series of visions, which he is instructed to record. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, we are told that these visions are to be sent to seven churches in Asia Minor, the region round about Ephesus, which is now on the west coast of what we call Turkey. And it's obvious that as he writes to those seven churches and sends the report of the vision that he's seen, that those seven churches are going through very difficult times. And so we have, if you like, the bishop in exile having a vision of what is going on and writing to the seven churches from which he is separated to bring them a word of encouragement in very difficult times. Now that is the setting of Revelation. That is the key to beginning to understand this book. It is written in a certain genre that we call apocalyptic, which is very strange to us in the 21st century, but was perfectly normal in the days in which it was written. And the people who received it were perfectly used to reading this sort of thing. In the same way that perhaps today some people enjoy science fiction, so these people enjoyed apocalyptic. John is transported in a vision into heaven. And he's invited into heaven through an open door. In fact, he is told to come up there so that he might be told the things that must come to pass. Now, that's the second clue to understanding the book of Revelation. He has been shown the things that must come to pass. And the emphasis on the must is not just those of you who want to stare into a sort of celestial crystal ball and figure out what's going to happen. Here it is for you. No, the emphasis is on the things that you are going to see here, John, will come to pass because they must, 
because they are part and parcel of God's grand cosmic eternal plan. Well, as he looks into heaven, he sees someone sitting on the throne. He is so indescribably magnificent, he is lost for words, but he does the best that he can. And then he sees someone else in the throne with the one who is indescribable. And he describes him as a lamb who looks as if he'd been slain and he is standing in the middle of the throne. We know exactly who the lamb who looks as if he'd been slain and is now standing is because immediately there is a challenge. And the challenge is that hold, uh, the, the God sitting on the throne is holding in his hand a scroll. We're not told what this scroll is about, but we've already been told that John was invited into heaven so that he might know what must come to pass. So it's a reasonable assumption that the scroll is all about what must come to pass. And the question is, who is worthy and who is able to open the scroll? In other words, who is able to make sense of what is going on in the world? Who is able to explain how God is working out his purposes in the world? But more than that, who is able to implement God's purposes according to his grand cosmic eternal plan? And uh, the answer is there's nobody there can do it. And John is distraught. You know why? Because John, like all kinds of other people, is looking at our world and asking why is our world the way it is? Who is going to do something about our world? When are they going to do it? How are they going to do it? People down through the centuries have been asking the huge questions about human existence in this world of ours and not coming up with any answers. But then the voice in heaven says there is one who is worthy and able to open the book. And it is the lamb who looked as if he'd been slain. It is Jesus the risen, once crucified Savior, who is able to take the whole purposes of God for the whole of the world and unfold what it is that God is doing, make sense of it, and implement God's grand cosmic eternal plan. And as a result of this, of him coming forward, there is a tremendous burst of worship in heaven. It starts with the four living creatures around the throne. It spreads out to the 24 elders. Then it spreads out to hundreds of thousands of angels. And then it spreads to all the people in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And there is a great crashing triumph to God and to the Lamb. And that's how far we've got so far. Now, in the passage that I'm not going to talk to you about, but I need to explain to you what it's about so that you'll get some degree of continuity here, it talks about the Lamb now beginning to break the seals of the scroll. And as these seals are broken, there are all kinds of revelations of all kinds of terrible things that are happening or are going to happen in the world. These seven seals that are broken describe these things with particular reference to what is going to happen to the church as these things are happening in the world. But at the end of the seven seals, then there are seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets revert to going back again and telling basically the same thing, only now this time is not with reference to the church. Now it is with reference to the world, those people who are not believers, those who are not committed to Christ. 
Now then, we come to chapter 12. And in chapter 12 and 13 and 14, we have more details about what is going to happen to the church as the purposes of God unfold down through the ages. Now, there are seven of these signs. We know that John is sort of into sevens big time, and so it's no surprise that we've had seven seals, we've got seven trumpets, we've got seven bowls, we've got now seven signs. Look, if you will, now into the passage I just read to you a few moments ago. And the first sign is about a woman, a child, and a dragon. Now, the wondrous sign that appears in heaven is this woman clothed with sun. She is utterly radiant, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, I wonder who this woman can be. Well, the key is the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37... Verse 9, there is a record there of Joseph explaining to his father and his brothers about a dream that he's had. And in this particular dream that his brothers and his father were less than enthusiastic about, he says that there came a time in his dream when the moon and the 11 stars all bowed down to him. See? And uh, they, they didn't like the idea because they immediately caught on and said, you mean that we are going to bow down to you? Well, who was Joseph's father and who were his brothers who were represented by the moon and the 11 stars? And the answer is Israel and the children of Israel. So who is this woman who is standing on the moon and who is gathering around her the 12 stars? You say, hey, just a minute, you just said 11 stars. That's right, 11 brothers plus Joseph equals 12. And the answer is this woman, this pregnant woman, is Israel. Now, why in the world would Israel be described as a pregnant woman? And the answer is that this was not unusual in the Old Testament. And remember that we interpret the book of Revelation to a very large extent on the basis of the Old Testament. Over and over again, John sees things that are clearly related to his understanding of the Old Testament. So listen to this, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. Now, who's saying that? The prophet Isaiah is saying that about the children of Israel. And so the woman in this vision is Israel, who is about to give birth to a child. Now, as she is about to give birth to a child, guess what happens? An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head, stands in front of the woman who is about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, who is this great dragon? 
Well, we're told actually a little bit further on exactly who the dragon is. In fact, in verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So here we have a confrontation. Israel, about to give birth, is confronted by that old serpent, the devil, Satan himself. Now, why would he be called the serpent? Well, and the, the people that John is re relating the vision to, they would immediately know why he was called the serpent. For their mind would go back immediately to Genesis chapter 3, where we have the story of forefather and foremother in the Garden of Eden. And you remember the devil comes to them in the form of a serpent. Why? Because he is diametrically opposed to all the purposes of God. And why is he now standing before this woman pregnant with child? Because he is still diametrically opposed to the purposes of God. And what is the purpose of God? The purpose of God is that Israel will bring forth a child who is going to make all the difference in the world. What kind of a child is it? Verse 5 tells us, a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. <laughs> the child that is going to be born of Israel that the devil wants to gobble up immediately is a child who will rule the world. I wonder who that could be. Well, the people listening to the reading of John's letter, they would know immediately who this was because they were familiar with Psalm 2. If you look into Psalm 2, this is what it says. It is called a messianic psalm. And it says this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So, who is the child who is born of ancient Israel whom the dragon wishes to destroy? And the answer, of course, is the Lord's anointed one. Now, another word for anointed is the Christ. And so the one who is to be born is Christ, born of Israel, challenged by the devil. Now, it's very interesting to notice that it says in verse 5, when the child was born, the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, this is what you call compressed history. He's just been born. Now he's snatched up to heaven and to the throne. Well, that's 33 years compressed into a sentence. It's all about the nativity and the ascent, resurrection and ascension and the glorification of Christ for he is sitting on the throne or he is standing in the throne. So this is the picture that is given to John. This is his first vision. Now, you'll notice that while this goes on, as the evil one tries to destroy the child and fails, he turns his attention to the woman. And for 1,260 days, she is taken off into the wilderness to a place of security and safety where she is cared for. Now, 
What does this 1,260 days look like? Well, if you figure out 30 days to a lunar month, 1,260 days equals 42 months. 42 months equals three and a half years. In the Old Testament and also in Revelation, you will hear them talking about a time, times, and half a time. Time is a year. Times, plural, is two years. One plus two is three, plus half is three and a half. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days keep recurring over and over. The interesting thing, however, is that this idea of time, times and half a time, comes from the book of Daniel. And And the idea there is that this is going to be a limited time of specific duration under which God will be in charge, even though all kinds of things are happening. So, we now see that Israel is going to be taken into a place of security and safety while the dragon tries to destroy her, having failed to destroy the child. But now we realize that this this is going to be for an extended time. And so we, we begin to see now that Israel is what we call the new Israel. And the new Israel is a name for the church. Many, many times in Scripture, in the New Testament, we find things that were specifically said about Israel being applied to the church. For instance, Peter does it regularly in his epistle. James, clearly writing to Christians, however, addresses them as the 12 tribes. Paul says that those of us who are, uh, who are living by faith in Christ are Abraham's seed. He tells the Philippians that we are the circumcision who worship Christ, etc., etc. And so it is legitimate to see now that the church has picked up from what ancient Israel was supposed to be and supposed to do and failed to do, as Isaiah said in chapter 26. So we put all this together, and what have we got? We've got a huge devil who is totally opposed to God's child being born. He tries to destroy him, but fails. So he turns his attention to the church and does all that he can to destroy the church. But the church is protected for a period of time particularly ordained and decided and set apart by God until his purposes are accomplished. Now, do you think the people listening to this, they would understand this because of all the Old Testament references with which they were familiar. Do you think that those people in struggling little churches would get excited about this message? Of course they would, because they realize that what God is saying to John is this. You are going to go through incredibly difficult times as the church. But in the same way that the evil one was unable to destroy Christ, so he will be unable to destroy you too. You will be in a place of utter safety and security as I'm working out my eternal purposes. All right, that's the first vision. Now here's the second one. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. There was war in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. All right, here's the second vision. This one we call war in heaven or war in the heavenlies. There is a huge conflict, a huge cosmic conflict in the spiritual realms. It is between the devil, Satan, the old serpent, the dragon, or the accuser of the brethren, whatever term you want to use, they're all used here, and Michael, who is the archangel. He is the one in charge of hosts of angels. Now, this, this is strange stuff for us Westerners, not strange at all for people living in the developing world because they are perfectly happy believing that this world is full of all kinds of spiritual beings. We got sophisticated and we've reasoned them out of existence. They're still there, by the way. And there is in this world and in this universe a huge cosmic spiritual battle going on. And it is, it, it is demonstrated here by the great dragon and all his angels and Michael and all his angels. And the interesting thing about it is this. He who leads the world astray, the devil, was not strong enough to deal with the forces of God. And he is hurled out of the heavenlies onto the earth. And there on the earth, he is absolutely beside himself with fury. And because he is beside himself with fury, the earth is told, woe to the earth because the devil has gone down to you, but the heavens are told that they should rejoice. In heaven they're rejoicing because the devil is defeated. On earth, there isn't quite the same rejoicing because he was kicked out of heaven and he is now rampaging on earth. Do you think the people in these suffering churches would get an idea of what he was talking about? Oh, sure. Because they are experiencing all kinds of persecution. But the interesting thing about it is this. The church is in a place of security. The church cannot be touched. It cannot be destroyed. In fact, in the long run, something very interesting is going to happen. The devil will realize that he cannot overcome the church any more than he was able to destroy the child who was born of the woman. And how will the church prevail? We are told the church will prevail against all the forces of the evil one by the blood of the lamb 
by the word of their testimony and by their faithfulness. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So here's the picture of a church. The church in very difficult times where a furious devil is doing all that he can to destroy the church, but he's unable to do it he, because he is already defeated. The church is able to stand up against all the forces of the evil one, not by using all kinds of weapons, but using spiritual weapons. And what are the spiritual weapons? To claim the blood of the Lamb, the cleansing, empowering of the crucified and risen Christ. To stand firm in their testimony and to refuse to be intimidated by all the forces of evil. That is what makes the church the church. People standing strong in Christ, people fearless in their testimony, people utterly faithful to the commitment that they had made. And the voice in heaven says, salvation and power, and now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ. Why? Because the church down here, dealing with a furious devil, is standing firm in who Christ is. Now you get in the picture. And this is a picture that would be an enormous encouragement to the people in those little struggling churches. That's the second vision. Now here's the third vision. The dragon and the woman. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 17. This is more or less a repetition of what we've already seen, so we don't need to spend a lot of time about it on, on it except to say this, that it's all about the dragon, verse 17, was enraged at the woman, that is the church, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who obey God's commandment and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What is he saying? He is saying that there's going to be a time where the church on this world is going to face up to all the forces of evil. And it's going to be a war. It's going to be a war. Now, of course, we understand that because we have various songs such as Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War. Now, I'll grant you that many of us live our Christian lives as if we're a bunch of Christian holidaymakers going to a picnic. But in actual fact, what the Scripture says is that we are part and parcel of a monumental spiritual struggle. We are caught up into something called spiritual warfare. Different parts of the world understand this. Are you aware of the fact that in the 20th century, 1.8 million Africans were martyred. In the 20th century, 1.8 million Christian martyrs in Africa alone. It is estimated right now that 200 million people, Christians, live in a situation of serious persecution. Serious persecution. Their lives are threatened. The possibility of prison is imminent upon them all the time. 200 million people. 
Are you aware that there are 400 million people, in addition to the 200, who face severe restrictions and loss of human rights for no other reason than they are Christians? And I received a report from a friend of mine. It's an analysis of religious liberty and persecution trends in the year 2003. This is what she says. Religious liberty and security for Christians has seriously and rapidly deteriorated, listen, in Eritrea, Iraq, and Sri Lanka. The religious liberty situation for Christians in Afghanistan, Bhutan, China, India, North Africa, northern Nigeria, Somalia, and the Gulf is very difficult, while in Bangladesh, Belarus, Indonesia, Turkmenistan, it is going from bad to worse. The situation for Christians in Iran, Laos, Maldives, Northern Korea, Saudi Arabia, and Vietnam remains intolerable. Christians in the Ivory Coast, Central Sulawesi, and Papua live with daily anxiety of impending conflict. We are incredibly out of touch with what is really going on in the world. There is an enormous spiritual battle going on. There is a huge red dragon who is mighty and powerful and utterly incensed and furious. He tried to destroy the child and couldn't, for the child is in the, in the throne of God and he is waiting until he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. So he's turning his attention on the church and he will do all that he can to destroy the church of Christ. Because we don't even know what persecution is in America does not mean it isn't happening in many, many parts of the world. And who knows what lies in the future? Because you see, God is revealing to John what must come to pass. Now, the way of looking at this is, is very basic. We are already told that, that now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. The accuser of our brothers has been hurled down. He has been overcome. In other words, the war has been won. The devil is defeated. But the skirmishing is still going on. He is still a powerful foe, but he absolutely emphatically cannot win. He absolutely emphatically cannot win. For there is in the throne above a lamb, looked as if he'd been slain, standing there, waiting until the 1,260 days the 42 months, the three and a half years, the time, times, and half a time are fulfilled. And God says, now you shall reign and rule the nations with a rod of iron. This must come to pass. There's the vision. Well, that was the third one. Good, all right. Here's the fourth one then. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. 
He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. All inhabitants of the world will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, the fourth vision is the beast from the sea. Now, you'll notice the description of this beast. All kinds of horns and heads and crowns, all of which speak of power and authority. But this is what it says. He resembled a leopard, had feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion. Now, there's the clue to understanding that. The people listening to John's letter being read... They know their Old Testament. They know Daniel chapter 7. They know in Daniel chapter 7 that there were various beasts described there and that these four beasts stood for great rulers or great empires. And guess what? One of Daniel's beasts was like a leopard and one was like a bear and one was like a lion. They would look at each other, these people sitting in the little churches, and they would nod and say, yeah, we know what he's talking about. We know what he's talking about. Because you see, those beasts, those, those great empires that came against the people of God, uh, what, what he's saying here is this, that all the worst of those four empires, all the worst of those four regimes are packed into one here. And there is something that is going to happen in the world that is going to come up against the, the church in the name of the devil. Well, I wonder what this thing could be. Well, if we take the clue of the four empires, the worst of them all being compressed into one, it appears that what he's talking about here is probably the Roman Empire. But beyond the Roman Empire, which incidentally was a huge threat to these churches at this particular time, but beyond the Roman Empire, he is talking about the state that is godless, the state that sets itself up against God, the state that becomes an instrument of the devil himself. This will be a tremendous challenge to the church. Now, is there anything realistic about this? Well, yeah, if you lived in the days of these early Christians getting this letter, they knew how powerful the state was. They knew how blasphemous it was. They knew how cruel it was. They knew how it was so incredibly powerful that they didn't have a chance standing up against it. And because of that, they recognized that they were in great, great danger. But what about since the first century? 
Has there been any problem that the church has ever had with the state? Well, you go to any of the former communist countries, they'll tell you all about it. You can go to many of the countries today where militant Islam is in control. They'll tell you all about it. And the simple fact of the matter is this, that in the West, in a very different dimension, we are seeing the state attack the church. And we are seeing something called secularism in the name of the state beginning to erode and take away what the church stands for. For instance, President Chirac of France, the law that he brought in had to do with Muslim women in France, and there are huge numbers of Muslims in France because of the former North African colonies. Many of them have come to live in France now, the people from those colonies. The Muslim women were insisting on wearing a head covering. And they have decided that they are not allowed to wear a head covering because that would be an ostentatious statement of religion. Not only have they banned them wearing the headscarf, the Muslims, but they have banned the Christians from wearing an ostentatious cross. They have banned the Jews from wearing an ostentatious head covering. Notice the word is ostentatious. That was the law, but in actual fact, they've now changed it from ostentatious to ostensible, which means visible. And so now the secular state is simply telling religious people, you do not have the freedom to demonstrate your religious commitment. And it's a very fine line between that and denying them the freedom to speak out in the name of their faith. This is the state. This is the secular state empowered by the evil one doing what it can to militate against the church. That's the beast from the sea. But then the fifth one is the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the earth, we read about this in verse 11 through 18. I don't have time to read it to you. It's a beast that is like the other one, except it has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It's got horns like, it looks like a lamb, but don't be, don't be misled, because when it opens its mouth, it speaks like the dragon. And how does the dragon speak? The dragon speaks blasphemies against God. Now, what does this second beast do? What this second beast does is it encourages people to worship that which is false. And so now we have another enemy of the church. We have got the power of the secular state or the power of the militant state epitomized by the Roman Empire. But now something is coming out of the Roman Empire, which is an enormous threat to the church. What is that? Emperor worship emperor worship, where the emperors were claiming deity and where people were required to worship the emperor. And the Christians were refusing to do it, and many of them were being martyred because of it. So now we have, coming from the dragon, two beasts. We have the state opposed to the church, and we have false religion in the name of the state, opposed to the church and posing great problems. 
Has there been anything since the first century? Oh, yes. All you need to do is go to the communist countries and talk to people who were raised under communism, where because they came from a Christian family, they were not allowed to have an education, but they were indoctrinated with communist dogma, atheistic dogma. Down through the centuries, there have been many, many examples. The question is this, what's going to happen in the future? And the answer is, we don't know. But the trends, as Elizabeth Kendall says, are very definitely moving in the direction of more and more the sort of things that John envisioned in his vision. Interestingly enough, verse 18, it says this, If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. His number is, now some of you have heard about this, 666. Oh, couldn't we have a wonderful time with 666? I remember the first Bible my father gave me when I started preaching as a teenager had a little clipping fastened in this page of the Bible. And it was a clipping from a newspaper proving conclusively that 666 really stood for Mussolini, the great Italian leader. And my dad believed that with all his heart until Mussolini got himself uh, lynched and hung upside down in the main piazza in the middle of Rome. Down through the years, people have done wonderful things figuring out what the symbol 666 means. Now, one thing we do know is this, that in the days when the book of Revelation was written, there, there was a certain approach that people had, and it was this. It was called gematria. Gematria operated on this basis, that the letters of the alphabet stood for numbers. The letters of the alphabet stood for numbers. So A, 1, B, 2, C, 3, D, 4, etc., etc., for the first nine letters. And then the next nine letters stood for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and then, and then, and so on and so on, till they ran out of letters in the Greek alphabet. Then they had to get some old ones that they didn't use anymore and stick them on the end. And they gave every letter a numerical value. Now, they used to have all kinds of wonderful times developing a code used for a name or giving it out in a number. Now, that, that's how they used to do it. So, people have been spending an enormous amount of time down through the years figuring out what 666 stands for. One of the favorite answers is Nero. Now, there's no question about it that Nero gave the church fits. But if you look at how they figure out that 666 spells Nero, you'll find that it is a remarkable hodgepodge of Latin and Hebrew and Greek spelled wrongly. And so you don't put a lot of credence in that. What do you think 666 stands for? Well, look at it this way. If you take the name Jesus in Greek and give it a numerical value, it comes to 888. 777 is the perfect number. Now, I don't have time to get into why 777 is the perfect number. 
If 777 is the perfect number, which incidentally is the address of this church, and I'm so glad it wasn't 666. If it was, we'd have had a movie to block. 777 is the perfect number. 888 is absolute perfection. Who's that? Jesus. If 888 is absolutely perfect, absolute perfection and 777 is the perfect number, what's 666? 666 is always coming short. Always coming short. And what is it that infuriates the devil? Always coming short. Always coming short. And what is it that marks out the people who are in league with the beast and the evil one and outside the community of believers? Always coming short. What is 666? It is that inner marking that tells a person deep in their hearts that they are always coming short. What they're believing is not right. What they're committed to is not right. There is something coming short. And by the way, in the Greek, the word for sin is always coming short. 666. The sixth, the sixth vision is the lamb on Mount Zion. Then I looked, and before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Oh, you say, good night. There's another set of numbers here. Who are the 144,000? The picture, it's the church. It's the, it's the people of God. And where are they? They are standing on Mount Zion. And they are singing a new song before the throne, etc., etc. And no one can learn the song except those who have been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves, for they kept themselves pure. In other words, those who are redeemed, those who are pure, those who have been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb, those who have been faithful, those who have given testimony to Christ, they are the ones. And the interesting thing about it is this, that they have the mark of God upon them. Not the mark of 666 always coming short, but the mark that they have been sealed with the blood of Christ and they are sealed by the precious Holy Spirit. And number seven, the harvest of all the earth. Let me just read this to you. Verse six of chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Notice what he's saying here. He is coming with the eternal gospel. And what is part of the eternal gospel? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. What people don't understand is this, that one aspect of the gospel is the judgment of God. One aspect of the gospel is the judgment of God. Do you know why a lot of people are not particularly interested in the gospel of salvation? Because they don't think they need saving from anything. They don't think they need saving from anything. They think 
they're all right. When in actual fact, the 666 is stamped on their soul, always coming short. Always coming short. And the person who always comes short is the person who one day will stand before a holy, righteous, just God. And a holy, righteous, just God must do the right, just thing by people who have always come short. It is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what the Bible says. It's a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is why, you see, when we tell people this, Many of them will say, well, to whom can I turn for salvation? And the answer is, you can turn to Christ, who is the 888, the more than perfect one, the one who can transform your life and make you acceptable to God. But if the message of the gospel is going to be preached, we have got to recognize that one dimension of that is the judgment of a holy, righteous and just God. Now, the people in those little struggling churches, they, they can relate to all this stuff. They've been living in days when all those things are happening to them. They have no idea what's going to happen in the future, but they don't have any problem with this at all. And they also recognize that there's a very real sense in which they are living in the midst of a huge cosmic struggle. And it isn't just a case of having a sort of a, a fun religion. It's a case of something that goes to the very core of their beings as they're caught up in a huge cosmic battle between right and wrong, between good and evil, between God and the devil. And they know in their own hearts that their only hope of ever being right with God is if they will acknowledge before a holy, righteous God that they have been coming short in their lives and they plead with him for his forgiveness and his grace. And he draws them to himself and he cleanses them with the blood of Christ. And they, out of love for Christ, now testify to what he's done in their lives. And they are faithful unto death if necessary. And it won't surprise them at all. Because you see, they know that they're called to witness. And the Greek word for witness that they used in those days was martus, from which we get martyr. And they knew that if they were cleansed with the blood of Christ and were faithful to their commitment to Christ and they witnessed to Christ, there was a pretty good chance they might finish up a martyr. But notice how our passage ends. Verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And there's the message of confidence and hope for them. The devil, the beasts from the sea, the beasts from the earth cannot touch them for all eternity. Might make it hot for them, might make it difficult for them, might make it very unpleasant for them, might even kill them. Might even kill them. Pretty good chance that will happen to a number of them. But what a blessing that will be 
for they will die in the Lord and be secure for all eternity. Do you think those people living in scary days? We're glad to hear that. After 9-11, Jill and I were having to get on a plane as usual, and that was a little scary. <laughs> Planes were flying around, you know, with just the crew on for some reason. And uh, I, I remembered at that particular time a poem that I'd read as a boy written by Rupert Brooks, one of the first World War poets. It was called Safety. And I dug around and I found a copy of it and I wrote it on a piece of paper and I wrote another piece for Jill and we've carried them in our Bibles ever since. This is what he says. Safe shall be my going, secretly armed against all death's endeavor. Safe though all safety's lost. Safe where men fall. And if these poor limbs die, safest of all. That's the Christian attitude to danger. It's the Christian attitude to being in the midst of a huge cosmic battle. For the worst thing that can happen to you as things become very, very difficult and even dangerous, as millions of Christians around the world know all too well, the worst thing that can do to you is kill you. And blessed are those who die in the Lord. And should these poor limbs fall safest of all. What a message of encouragement for those struggling little churches. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the very powerful message that comes through from these strange visions that John had. And we thank you that there's a sense in which we can begin to understand to a certain extent what it was that you were saying to them or what it is that you're saying to us. And in a nutshell, it is simply this, that you sent your son and he is building his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And that you invite us to be committed to Jesus, cleansed by his precious blood, taking a stand of faithfulness and commitment to him, whatever the opposition might be, fearlessly, winsomely testifying to our utter trust in him. That's what you're doing. That's what you want to do with us, Lord. We have to freely admit that at times... Our testimony has been muted. We have to admit that at times we have been unfaithful. We have to admit at times that we have reverted to the things of which we repented. And we have gone back to the things from which we were cleansed. And there have been times when we have been so overcome by fear and anxiety that we've been paralyzed. But you would remind us that you have raised up your son and taken him to your right hand and he is seated there in the position of ultimate authority until the time that you have ordained has been fulfilled. When the time that you have ordained has been fulfilled, you will draw to a conclusion the affairs of this world. 
and Christ will reign. And he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And those who acknowledge him as Lord and Savior will enter an eternity of bliss. And those who reject him and deny him will find they come under the holy, just, righteous wrath of God. Help us, dear Lord, to take these things to heart, both for ourselves, that we might make our calling sure. And help us at the same time to have a heart of concern and compassion for the millions of believers who suffer. And give us a fresh desire to have a testimony and a faithfulness that will have an impact on those who as yet have the wrong mark on their lives. That we might become agents of blessing for them. Hear our prayers. And let our cries ascend unto you. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.